0: Growing up, uh, there was a movie that I both simultaneously loved and hated, and I think that many of you are going to agree with me here. It's the 1993 film Homeward Bound The Incredible Journey. And if you aren't familiar with the story, which um, maybe many college students might not be, it's 93. It's, it's a story of a family who goes on a trip, and they leave their pets uh, to be watched at a ranch. But the three pets, we have Chance, the bulldog, we have Sassy, the cat, and we have Shadow, the golden retriever. They think that they've been abandoned, and Shadow particularly is, is worried about his owner, Peter, this young boy. And so the pets decide to leave the ranch and try to make it home. And so the movie is a story of their journey through the mountains trying to get home. They cross rivers, they face bears and and mountain lions and and porcupines. And all the while, now the family is also looking for their pets as well. And then toward the end of the movie, and the, the saddest part is Shadow, the old golden retriever falls through some wooden boards into this muddy pit, and he injures his leg and his paw, and... Chance and Sassy, they try to rescue him out of the pit, but they can't, and so they have to leave him and go on. It's so sad. And then finally, Chance and Sassy make it home. They see their family in the backyard. Obviously, the family's excited. They start rejoicing. Their two pets run up to them. But then the reality hits. Peter is looking for Shadow, and he comes to realize Shadow didn't make it back. He was too old. He couldn't make it. But in the most climactic moment of all of cinema, <laughs> Shadow comes limping over the hill and the two run toward each other and they embrace and it's a sweet moment of reunion and of celebration. And at this point in the movie, you're crying. You're, you're filled with joy and relief. Uh, I saw a meme in the last few weeks. Uh, it was really funny. It, it said on the top. It said, a Therapist, what's, is the happiest moment of your childhood. And then it says me, and it's just a picture of shadow coming over the hill. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, amen, that is so good. And so today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to continue in our theme of being lost and found. Today we come to a familiar story for many of us, the story of the prodigal son, and like Homeward Bounds, This is a story of sweet reunion and rejoicing. This is a story where in the most climactic, happiest, sweetest moment, the father runs from the house and embraces his once-dead, once-lost son. In our story, in our parable today, we see a father's heart. And it's a heart that reflects God's own heart for his children. And so our big truth for today is this, if you hear one thing, hear this, the heart of the Father is that of love and forgiveness given to those who are near and to those who are far off. So go ahead, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 11 through 32, and as we think about this big truth and we think about our story today, it's important to keep in mind the context of where we're at in this narrative. And so last week, if you remember, Zach preached on chapter 15, the first 10 verses. And last week, we read two parables that Jesus shares with the crowds, both Jews and Gentiles, both the religious leaders of the day and the sinners and tax collectors. And if you remember, the Pharisees are following Jesus around. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're bitter at what Jesus is doing. But both these parables have to do with the lost being found. We hear of one man who loses one of his sheep, and he goes, and he searches, and he searches until he finds the missing sheep. And then we heard a parable of a woman who lost one of her silver coins, which was immensely valuable, and she turns her house upside down and inside out until she finds it. In both cases, there is great cause of rejoicing and celebrating. That which was once lost is now founds. When sinners come to faith and repentance, it is a time of rejoicing. And so today, our story, our parable, follows and it finishes this theme. And we're going to walk through this text in four points, four big ideas. And, And remember, a parable is a method, it's a tool, it's a method of sharing stories that communicate truth or illustrate principles. So let's go ahead and dive in. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the sh- share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, That is mine, is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Could just end the sermon right there. Such an incredible parable. And so our first point as we jump in is this. The heart of the younger brother. And the corresponding big idea is this. Reckless living will leave you broken and longing for more. Reckless living will leave you broken and longing for more. And so right away, we see the demand of the younger brother. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And in his demand, we we learn a lot about his character. Typically, and the same goes for today, there's usually a death that happens before there's an inheritance. Here we see him saying, I don't care that you are not dead. Give me what will be mine now. I would rather have the money than have you. And in so doing, he is separating himself from the family. He is rejecting them. This is an act that's going to bring shame on the son, on the father, and on the family name. And according to the Jewish custom, a man with two sons he would give his firstborn son a double portion of the inheritance because he was the firstborn. So that would leave then one-third of the inheritance to be left to the younger brother. A typical father, I mean, especially in this period, would have put his foot down. I mean, just reading this passage and seeing how the younger brother views his family makes you just want to slap the sense into him. And that's probably what would have happened in most cases. The father, the patriarch of the family, who cares about his honor and his dignity, would have put his son in his place. He would have said, son, quit talking. Go to your room. Give me your car keys. You're not leaving the house until you fix your attitude. But this isn't a typical father. And this parable, from start to finish, is highlighting The father and his heart and his character. It's called the prodigal son. And many of us focus on the younger son and and others tend to focus on the older son. And we're going to look at both sons carefully. But really, this is a parable about how the father responds to his sons. And so the father grants the request. He gives him what he wants. It didn't take long For the younger brother to liquidate all of his assets, to call up the local real estate agent, sell off the property, sell off the cattle, hitch a donkey, and hit the road. And what were his missions? Was they go into this distant country and to use his newfound fortune wisely and invest it? No, not in the slightest. His aim is simply self-pleasure. We finish reading in verse 13. He took a journey into a far country... And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. We aren't given the details on what this reckless living looked like, but I'm sure that you can use your imagination. In fact, I think it's probably left vague intentionally so that you can use your imagination. He spent his fortune on reckless living. I think he went to this distant country in search of liberation in search of satisfaction, in search of finding himself, uh, of making a name for himself, in search of his true identity, in search of living his best life, in search of pleasures. But how, how did it leave him? When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Recession kicks in. Desperation kicks in. He is starving to death. And he does find work. He's hired by a citizen of that distant country, and his job is to feed the pigs. And now, if you know anything about the Israelite Jewish culture and the laws, Jews and pigs, they don't mix. They are seen as unclean animals. So clearly, He has reached a low point, a point of utter humiliation and shame and despair and brokenness and of longing for more. He was so desperate that the pig's food was starting to look good. And yet no one gave him anything. He is truly alone. His reckless living has left him broken and unsatisfied. And this is a story of many of us. Naturally, in this parable, we're going to gravitate toward one of the two brothers. And I know many in here have stories of being the younger brother. And I know that there are some in here who are headed down the same path as the younger brother. There's a lie that the world tries to sell you, that to find joy... To find satisfaction, to find yourself, you must pursue total freedom. You can't be tied down to anything. You can't be tied down to morals and values. Those are outdated. Those are restrictive. Those are a killjoy. You can't be tied down to a relationship. No, you must be free to pursue any and all romantic pleasures that you desire. You can't be tied down to a family. That's going to hold you back from your career. You can't be tied down to a community. They might hold you accountable to something. You can't be tied down to a job, a nine-to-five. That's too monotonous. No, the lie is that you need to be yourself, to find yourself, to indulge, to overindulge, to pursue your freedom and your licentiousness, to pursue extravagance and decadence and debauchery. In these things, you're going to find happiness. In these things, you'll find joy and peace and satisfaction. You be you. You do you. And don't let anything or anyone tell you otherwise. But guess what? That's called reckless living. And guess where it'll leave you? Broken. Empty. Longing for satisfaction, longing for more, longing for meaning and purpose, longing for true love, for true relationships, for true community. As I look back at my life, and as I look at this parable, I see myself in this youngest brother. I went down this path of, of reckless living, and it left me empty. Now, I didn't have much money to squander, but I had other things to squander and waste. I squandered my time. I look back and realize how much precious time I wasted chasing the stupid things of the world. I squandered friendships and relationships. I squandered brain cells. I squandered opportunity. But at the time, no one batted an eye at my reckless living. Ah, he's just a college kid. He's just finding his way. Let him do his thing. My reckless living was either excused, accepted, or celebrated. It was fine to get hammered, drunk with friends many, many days of the week. It was fine to chase girls and pursue meaningless relationships. It was fine to have shallow friendships that were only built on reminiscing about the night before. It was fine to be a gym bro and idolize body image. It was fine to idolize a career in finance and crave money and wealth and riches. After I graduated, I I went and I backpacked Europe, and I spent the summer with a friend in reckless living in a distant country. And there were certainly a few really close calls that that were sobering in, in more ways than one. And guess what? At the end of the trip, I found myself sitting alone in some random hostel in Italy, thinking, this is empty. This is, this is empty. I want more. I want more to life than this. And praise be to God, because in those moments, in the following months, the Lord showed me where true satisfaction where true purpose and meaning and joy are found. It's at this point in my life that I experienced for the first time, the heart of God and His love and His forgiveness of me. It was then that I turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, and my life has not been the same since. Praise be to God for that. The younger brother, he hits a low point, the lowest of low's. And what does it say happens next? Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here we see the expression, He came to himself. Some translations say he came to his senses. This is a way of saying he understood his reckless living. He understood his sin and his rebellion. He's saying, I need to repent of the ways I've been living and the ways I've been thinking. And then he thinks back to his home life. The servants, the hired servants, they earn a livable wage. They have plenty of bread and food I sit here starving to death and those in my father's care have plenty. They have more than enough. So he decides that he must go back. It's the only way. It's the only option for him. But he knows he can't go back as a son. He has forfeited that privilege. No, he must go back begging to be a hired servant. The son, in a place of real, genuine Humility and repentance plans his speech. He will tell his father that he has sinned against heaven and against him. And that wording is important. He acknowledges that his sin is first and foremost against God. That's reminiscent of King David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. This son is going to go straight to his father in repentance, in pleading. He's going to return home. Not as a son. But he thinks that Whatever it is, it's going to be better than where he's at now. But this son is, he's not just going home to a place. He's going home to a person. He's going home to his father. And it's in our next point, our second point, that we see the heart of this father. And here's our second big idea. Simply this. Receive forgiveness and experience forgiveness the love of the Father. Let me reread verses 20 through 24. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But... The father said to his servants, "Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again; he was lost and is founds." And they began to celebrate. The son makes this long, shameful trek back to his homeland, likely rehearsing the speech as he goes. The father sees him coming from a long way off. And many hearing this parable for the first time are probably like, finally, the son's coming home and the father's going to give it to him. He's going to be disciplined. He's going to unload on him. It's going to be rough. But again, that's not the heart of this father. He sees his son and has compassion. This father is one that has had many sleepless nights, tearful nights, grieving over the loss of his son. And here we see a beautiful picture of an elderly father running to his son. And that's not the way the culture worked back then. The patriarch of the family, the father, he doesn't run. That would be seen as undignified, as shameful. He doesn't care. He is overjoyed at his son's return. He embraces him and kisses him, and the son's prepared. He knows what he has to do. He has to come clean. He begins the speech, Father, I have sinned against you. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father cuts him off. Cuts him off before he can finish. He calls to his servants, Quickly, quickly, bring the best robe we have and wrap it around my son's shoulder. Grip the ring, put it on his finger. Take the sandals, put it on his feet. Bring out nothing but the finest. And it doesn't stop there. He calls for the fattened calf and calls for a feast and a celebration. There's no expense that is going to be spared for this party. He wants everybody to come rejoice with him. The heart of the father is one of compassion for his son, of forgiveness, of love. The heart of this father beautifully showcases the heart of God. There is forgiveness and compassion, and love for those who are far off in the most distant country. For those who have squandered their life. For those who have made a shipwreck of their life, of their family, of their marriage, of their body, of their relationships. The heart of God says, come home. Receive forgiveness. Know my love for you. Come home. The heart of God is to call sinners like me and like you to himself. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. From heaven he came and he sought us. He came to bring us from death to life. He came to leave the 99 and to save and rescue the one. We can know restoration and reconciliation. We can know grace and mercy. We can know compassion and kindness. We can know forgiveness and love. We can know what it's like to be lost and to be found. To be dead and to be alive. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. To be lost is to be dead. To be found is to be alive. If you are lost, if you are in a metaphorical distant country, if you're squandering your life with no meaning and no purpose, Jesus invites you to come home. He invites you to return, to be found in him, to be made alive. If this is you this morning, I invite you to turn to Jesus, to repent of your sin and the ways you've been chasing and the things of the world and reckless living and to trust in his perfect life, his spotless, sinless life, in his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. If this is you this morning, know the heart of God, and receive forgiveness and his love. Things are at a high point in this parable. However, we have to come to the third character. And so, our third point, the heart of the older brother. And the big idea here is this. Resentful obedience will leave you bitter and longing for more. Verse 25. Now his older brother, or his older son, was in the field These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, "'Son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive.'" He was lost and is found. So here we see this picture of the older brother. He's out in the field working. He has no idea what's going on back at the house. And I think that's significant. It shows that although he was the firstborn son, and he was home, and he was close to his father in proximity, he was actually far off from his father. He was actually separated from his father. And as the brother nears the house, he hears the party going on. And he's thinking, what in the world is going on? Am I the only one working around here? It seems that everyone else on his father's property knows what's going on except for him. He is literally the last one to find out. And that's revealing about his character. So he asks the servant. And if you're one of the servants, you might be reluctant to tell him what's going on because you just know how he's going to respond And he responds exactly like you'd think. Great, that useless, reckless, family-shaming young boy is back. Wait, what has my father done? He's done what? Are you kidding me? And then just anger and bitterness and frustration are just bubbling up inside of him. But just like the younger son, who was still a long way off, and the father goes to him, so it's the same here. The older brother... He's now a long way off. And the father goes out to him. In both these stories, it's the father taking initiative. And we see the older brother's heart and his disrespect. Look, look here, pops. Look at all these things I have done for you and for this family. I slave out here all day. I've never disobeyed your commandments. And I never got anything for it. But this son of yours... Notice how he doesn't say my brother. This son of yours who made an absolute mess out of his life, for him you're going to throw a party? And here I think that many of us can put ourselves in the shoes of this older brother. Maybe we've been going to church for years and years and years we follow God, we follow the scriptures to the best of our ability, we give money to the church, we, we do acts of kindness and service toward others, And we can start to think, God, what have you been doing for me lately? What have you done for me lately? I've been going through this trial, I've been going through this disease, this illness, this injury, I have a broken marriage, I have broken relationships, I have a Difficult, time-consuming, stressful, eight-to-five job. I have wayward children. God, you haven't thrown me a bone in a long time. Or maybe you sit here and you look out on all these new faces in the church and in the community who have backgrounds and life experiences that might be appalling to you, and you start to think, what are they doing here? Why do they get all the attention They're shiny and new, and people are noticing them and approaching them and welcoming them in. And Where does all this joy come from? Why are they so joyful? Let me tell you, resentful obedience to God will leave you bitter. It'll leave you longing for more. I think we can often come to a place of complacency in our faith, a place of viewing Christianity as mere rules to follow, we go through the motions devoid of any emotions, and as that starts to happen, joy is replaced with bitterness. The older son sees his father as merely a boss to be obeyed and to give him the things that he wants. And subtly and gradually, this can become a way of thinking that says if I do these things, I will earn favor with God, and he will bless me with the things I want. Resentful obedience can easily become a merit-based way of thinking. Or, resentful obedience may even mean that you've been going through the so-called Christian emotions and you have yet to actually place your faith in Jesus. And this might be a time where you need to sit back and consider your life and your salvation. Resentful obedience misses the reality that we have a relationship with God. Through Christ's atoning work, we have been reconciled to God, we have been brought as sons and daughters into his kingdom, adopted. We relate to God as Father. And there's so much joy and peace and purpose and satisfaction in this relationship. And it's so much better than pursuing the silly things of the world. Or being merely a Christian rule follower. And so we see the heart of the father in his response to his son Son, you are always with me. You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is now found. And the word son here in the Greek is actually a word of affection. He's saying, my child, my child, listen. This is a tender response. You are my firstborn son. Everything that I have is yours. You are privileged. You have it all. You need only to ask me. Do you not see that it was necessary for us to celebrate? Your brother was dead and is alive. And see how the father corrects his son's understanding? He says, your brother, yes, your family, When the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one, he comes back with the sheep on his shoulders. He comes in rejoicing. He calls his friends and his family. He says, come rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And the parable goes on to say, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance or who think they need no repentance. The older brother is in danger of being one of the 99. The Pharisees are being In danger of being one of the 99. When you think that you have things together and believe that your sins are trivial, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy, that I can do it myself, I don't need that repentance, you are in danger. The Pharisees, they sit on the outside, grumbling, judgmental, bitter about this Jesus and how he's inviting sinners and tax collectors in. Pharisees don't rejoice. They don't rejoice and celebrate what God is doing. Do not let this be you. I warn you, do not let this be you. Do not begrudge sinners coming to repentance. Do not resent new faith, new faces around the church. Do not become bitter when new believers have joy and are the center of attention. Rejoice over what the Lord is doing. Even if it's not exactly your flavor or your style or according to your exact theological understandings. Welcome in new Christians. Welcome them in. Welcome in those who are rough around the edges, those who have a past of reckless living. See the Father's heart and then emulate that in the way you welcome and receive those around you. The son was dead, spiritually dead, nearly physically dead, and he is now alive, spiritually alive. Paul says in Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is what it means for the dead to be alive. For the lost to be found. If anyone is in Christ, he is alive, he is found, he is a new creation. As Jesus tells this parable, he's doing so in a way to invite the Pharisees into the party. Jesus is telling the older brother, the group that's grumbling on the outside, you don't have to continue like this in your bitterness. Come and join me, rejoice at what God is doing. Rejoice that the Messiah is here. Rejoice that sinners are being saved. And you'll notice that we don't see the response of the older brother. What does he do? Does he accept his father's tender and loving words and enter into the party rejoicing? Or does he turn his back and head back out to the field, rejecting the father's invitation? This parable is intentionally left vague because it allows us to consider. It allows us to respond. And that is our last main point today. How are we going to respond to the heart of the Father? How are you going to respond to the heart of the Father? And our last big idea is simply this. Come to yourself and be welcomed home. We read back in verse 17. But when he came to himself, that is, when he came to his senses, when he came to a place of godly grief, of genuine repentance, he returned home. The older brother has not yet come to himself in this story. He has not yet repented of his sins. We are left wondering if he's going to. The younger brother, he left home and went off into a distant country. It appeared that he was on the outside. He was the one who was far off. The older brother, though, he was near, right? He was on his father's property. He was close in proximity to his father. It appeared that he was in, and his younger brother was out. It appeared that he was near, and his younger brother was far off. But appearances can be misleading. Because we see that the brother who was far off has been brought near. He is now on the inside in the warm, loving embrace of his father. While the older brother who appeared near is now far off. And he sits resentfully and bitterly outside of the home. Appearances can be misleading. Obedience to God can be joyful and genuine or resentful and bitter. So do you find yourself on the inside or on the outside? How are you going to respond to the Father's invitation? This morning, where do you find yourself? Do you relate with the younger brother? The one who lived recklessly and carelessly and wild? Or do you relate with the older brother? Who lived resentfully, and in bitterness, unwelcoming, joylessly. I think that at various points in our lives, we can shift between the two. Like I said, at one point in my life, I found myself relating with the younger brother's story. I saw myself in him. And now, almost 10 years later, after becoming a Christian, I can see bits of myself in the older brother's story where I don't always rejoice at what the Lord is doing, where my obedience can be resentful, where I can be judgmental, where I don't have joy. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he says this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If we're not careful, we can become this older brother. If we're not nurturing the relationship we have with God, if we're not rejoicing in the things that he is doing if we're not loving his church, if we're neglecting his love and his forgiveness, if we're taking those things for granted, if we think that we have cleaned ourselves up enough, we risk becoming this older brother. In this parable, Jesus is showing that those who are far off, who are the sinners and the tax collectors, those who acknowledge they have no righteousness of their own, who are trusting in Jesus and his righteousness, they are the ones who are going to be brought near They're going to be the ones who are brought into the kingdom of God. But also, Jesus is showing in this parable that it's not too late for the Pharisees. Jesus invites them into the celebration and to rejoice in what God is doing. He is inviting those who appear near to be actually near. And in this is also a warning. Jesus is saying, if you don't follow me, if you don't come and join me in this party, you're going to be on the outside. You are going to be separated from the Father for all eternity. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus is inviting us all to come to ourselves and to be welcomed home. Let us do just that. Let us come to ourselves. Let us repent of sin and let us know the heart of the Father and receive the forgiveness and love of God and be welcomed home into his eternal, everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grateful to be gathered with your church this morning, to sing praises to you, to open up your word. I thank you for this parable that is both encouraging and convicting. God, I pray that we would reflect on where we're at this morning. If we were on the inside or on the outside, if we were near or far off, that you'd help us to see which brother we identify with and that in both cases we would Repent of our sin and turn and trust in you, Christ, and in your righteousness and your perfection and your life, death, and resurrection, not in ourselves. Help us to trust in you and you alone. God, thank you that you came and saw us, that you rescued the one out of the 99, that you loved us and gave yourself for us. Although we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive. By grace, we have been saved. Let us rejoice in your love and your forgiveness and the grace that you've shown to us. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing a song of response.